Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Muckoff and we've got a super generous discount code just for you. It's really great to see brands working to reduce their impact on the planet and Muckoff have recently made a big step in launching Punk Powder, their first ever plastic-free bike cleaner. Punk Powder enables them to reduce packaging by 92% compared to a regular cleaner and it means we aren't unnecessarily shipping water around the planet. Just open a compostable sachet of punk powder, which in case you were wondering is printed with vegetable based inks, pour it into your aluminium bottle for life using the handy cardboard packaging that folds into a funnel, then add one litre of lukewarm water and give it a shake. It's that simple. A couple of seconds later, you've got your cleaner ready to go, which is readily biodegradable and made from plant based ingredients. I've tried it. It's really easy to mix. It's ready to go in seconds and it works just as well as the already awesome Muckoff Nanotech bike cleaner. I managed to clean some pretty stubborn sheep poo off my bike with ease and it left it looking awesome. If you want to try punk powder or get your hands on any of the rest of the Muckoff product range, then as a downtime listener, you can get 20% off during the month of September using the code downtime20 at the checkout over on muck-off.com. That's downtime all uppercase followed by the number 20 over on muckoff.com. We're heading into winter, it's about to get sloppy, so definitely time to stock up. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to support the show, then you can get your hands on the full range of merch over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. As always, it's top quality, organic, and made in a factory using renewable energy and then delivered with no single-use plastics. Head over now and check them out. All the proceeds help support and improve the show. Please make sure you're following the podcast wherever it is you listen. There's going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe. So hit that now. It's free and it means you're going to get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find a button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where there's links to all the major platforms there to help you. It'd also be great if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's the best place to keep up to date with what's going on. And it's always lovely to hear from you in the comments and the messages there. All right, folks, this week I'm joined by an all-time legend of our sport, the one and only Hans Ray. Hans has been there from the very start of mountain biking. He was the first rider to make use of video as a way to spread the love of bikes, and as a result, he's become one of the best-known mountain bikers on the planet. We sat down to chat about his awesome career and find out more about Hans himself. We chat about some of his amazing adventures where, for example, he's been possessed by spirits and followed by the Chinese Secret Service. Find out about Hans' approach to riding at 55, hear about his charity work with Wheels for Life and find out why he's so handy with a machine gun. Hans has some amazing stories to tell. So without further ado, here's Hans Ray. Hans Ray, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Things are very good. Thanks for visiting me here in the East Midlands. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for hosting. I didn't realise that you had a, a permanent place in the UK these days. Yeah, my wife's from England and we got a place like six years ago. So still, still live mainly in California, but I'm on a nine-week stint right now. Very nice. Yeah, coming to the end, you've just been at the Malvins Festival, is that right? Amongst other things, yeah. Yeah, how was the Malvins? Oh, it was great. great. It was really big. I'm... We had pretty good weather, a good crowd. Um, you know, they couldn't do it the last two years because of pandemic and rainstorms. Uh-huh. So it was kind of good to have it back and people were were pretty happy. There was a lot of fun events and fun races and um it is a it is a true a true festival, you know, which is nice. 
Yeah. Did you come over to the Malvins back in the day when it was a, was a thing? Like, what it, had that been early 90s? I sure did. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, those were the heydays, I think, of the of mountain biking in general, the golden days. Like in 93, I think, was the first time I came. And I think I came back in 98 or 90, yeah, one of those years uh, before they stopped it, then uh-huh. the first roundabout. Yeah, yeah, it's cool to have it back. I'll have to, I'll have to make, yeah, I didn't manage to make it this year, but definitely on the calendar for next year. So yeah, go and check it out and get involved in some of the, uh, the racing. I, like I was saying to you before we sat down to record, so much that I want to talk to you about, and uh, and I didn't, I really struggled in kind of my prep for this to try and work out where to go. But we start most episodes with people that have not been on before with, with a bit of background, like how bikes came into their life. So we'll, we'll start there and we'll see where we, where we get to, but you were relatively late in the grand scheme of things. Was it kind of, were you about eight by the time you got on a bike? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I didn't, for some reason I, I never had a little children's bike and, I remember learning on my mom's, like it was a big, like probably 28 inch bike or something like that. And, and yeah, and it was not until I was 12 years old that we had this, a safety rodeo in my hometown in Germany, near Freiburg in the Black Forest. And, you know, where you had to ride on around cones and uh-huh. little teeter totters and stuff. And, and that was put on by our local motorcycle trial club. And from then on, that club was on our radar, and then we wanted to have motorcycles. And before we knew it, there was literally 50 kids in our village or in our town that started riding push bikes. And we would, you know, but that was before even BMX came to Europe Uh and way before mountain bikes, you know, came to Europe or caught on. That was like in the late 70s. And we would literally convert these old Schwinn stingrays or a rally chopper bike kind of stuff. And yeah, never switched over to motorcycle trials, even though I kind of wanted to for a long time. But then I ended up growing up with the sport of bicycle trials. We didn't invent it. There was already other people doing it, uh-huh. but it kind of got really big and established in our ears when, you know, all of a sudden we found out that there's also kids in Spain doing it in England and, and the next thing we we know a few years later in 82 we had the first european cup for bicycle trials and then in in 86 they gave away the first rainbow jersey that was four years before mountain bikers got their first rainbow jersey so trials been around a lot and just because you're from england uh, we just recently found out that the first ever bicycle trials event that we know of was not as we saw it in the early 70s in Germany. It was actually in the mid-40s in England. Whoa. After the war, there was there, there have been um, newspaper articles been found. And I think it was down there by Horsham or somewhere. And, and they had a petrol shortage after the war. And all these guys who would do the motorcycle scrambling events, they would start now doing it on bicycles. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah I didn't know that. Yeah. Amazing. So it's been going a, lo- a long old time. And you got you got really seriously into it and into the competitive side back at home then in your younger years. Am I right in thinking you nearly kind of retired from trials at 18 to go off to university? Yeah, I did actually retire. And it was just like bicycle trials was a 20-inch. We did it only on 20-inch bikes and it was kind of a kid's sport. And I never switched to motorcycles. And it was in Germany, like 
at a certain level, you either carry on to university or you, you do an apprenticeship and learn a job, be it mm -hmm. a cook or a bricklayer or a car mechanic. And I started to go to university and um, I figured it's time to retire. And shortly after I retired in those years, we, we, we used to always do trial shows like um, with with motorcycles uh, with, with, to make a little pocket money, a little, a little car dealership or at a city festival on a really small scale. I mean, it was a complete amateur sport. Uh -huh. I mean, I was the German champion at the time, so I was one of the few guys who would maybe get a free bike for the season, you know. But um, so, so that was basically, um, and I figured, well, I don't really have to retire from doing shows. I can still do this. And in that same year, I had met this this American trials rider who, who um, who came always over to to Europe, and he was his name was Kevin Norton, and I had never really raced BMX, but BMX I looked at the magazines and they were very glamorous, and these these young kids would drive Porsches and have six figure incomes, and yeah. it was uncomprehendable. They had these nice uniforms and kits and bikes and and owned houses and and this guy came and he was sponsored by one of those companies Kuvahara and he told me one year Hans you have to come to America and show Americans what real trials riding is because we have a new sport in America and it's called mountain biking and in those early mountain bike races if you raced you did a cross country a downhill and a and a trials yeah. all in with the same bike of course they all did it on 26 inch mountain bikes but all of a sudden, trials became an adult sport, and that that American rider who came, he was in Europe. The Europeans were leading the sport, and they were the best. And and you know he would be not even in the top thirty in Europe, but 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 he had this huge passion, and he invited me over. And I figured, hey, this would be a great way to end my career to go to America and visit for, you know, and and to get to see the country. And I asked for a. a, a vacation semester a holiday semester at my uni and uh, went over there and it was kind of the right time the right place in southern california and kevin introduced me not only to mountain biking like the laguna rats bike club but he introduced me to all these brands and said hey you need to hire him because he wanted to um, he wanted more bike brands to get into the sport and trials was was on the crisp of getting big. That was before mountain biking. Everybody was waiting for the next big thing after skateboarding and, and BMX was big. And a lot of these companies had prototypes that so they weren't sure if it would go anywhere. And and then he talked GT into sponsoring me and that was the beginning of that. And and in those early year days, also Swatch sponsored me right away. Mm -hmm. And I figured, hmm, maybe I should stay a little bit longer, another, another semester or so. And out of one year became two, three, and and then the boom didn't start like that was in eighty seven, and the boom didn't really start until nineteen ninety. So it wasn't really like all like ro rosy and nice and easy at the beginning. But I did do a lot of shows and got to travel with a lot of skateboarders and BMXers or, across the country and the world. Like even like guys like Rob Roskop or Rodney Mullen, I would yeah. do shows with and all the BMX guys, and um, so. So, and then a few years later, um, I actually, again, was thinking about it's time to go back now to Europe. There was a lot of pressure, you know, because nobody ever heard of 
somebody making a career or a living, you know, out of this sport. And I was kind of torn and I almost became actually a rollerblader yeah, I <laughs> at heard one this. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were, you were on the verge of becoming a professional rollerblader. Was it, and this was kind of driven by the people you were hanging out with where you were living at the time. Yeah, right? my flatmates, they were all like, one actually was an English BMX freestyler, Jess Derenfors, and then his girlfriend, she was kind of some circus girl, and this other guy, he was the first ever aggressive, him and another guy were the first ever two aggressive inline uh, skaters that were sponsored by Rollerblade. And then we had a little mini ramp at the house, and we all started doing it. And the next thing we I know is like we were doing it like two or three times a week and I would actually get a little sponsorship money from Rollerblade f just for testing products like uh -huh. brakes and brakes and wheels and stuff. And I was seriously considering and, and the next thing I know, my roommates, they were doing it full time. And, and I, you know, I had I had still a lot going on with my career with, with the competitions and shows and other stuff, but it wasn't, hasn't really exploded. And one of those days, Richard Long, the late owner of GT Bicycles, he was the president at the time, he came to me and said, Hans, let's do one of those videos. It's so difficult to explain to people what you can do on a bicycle. Why don't we do a video? And that was my first video on Hans No Way Ray, which there was nothing out there. Yeah. No videos. There was way before internet. Our kind of, that kind of writing was not on TV. And people were like eating it up, like, you know, like, and they loved it. And it was short with action packed. All the other videos that were ever made about mountain biking, somebody would film a cross country race with elevator music. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that was, that was probably, probably the biggest milestone in my career, um, doing that video and then many more followed. Yeah. And there was a lot of camera angles that we would recognize today, like the whole point of view shots and stuff, but GoPro didn't exist. Like, how oh. are you filming this stuff? Because the equipment you must have had would be very different to what we see today, right? There was little camcorders. You could literally, with your with anybody's smartphone, you could make a better production than we did at the time. And we had these handheld video recorders, but some of the guys I worked with were really creative and they would strap like Velcro or whatever <laughs> or, or duct tape a camera to your chest you know, for example, and that was a really good angle or they would, I mean, I remember one that was, that was a little bit before that, my, that video was in 91. Uh -huh. And before that, I would sometimes, you know, TV would come and film us like ESPN or so. And I remember ESPN came and they had a, a camera, they came with a helmet that had a camera mounted on it. And then they had the recorder in a backpack and you had the whole recorder and battery was like 30 pounds thing you had to wear on your back. And then a guy would, would still be connected to a cable would run up behind you with the cable in his hand. I mean, I had, there's some photos around of me riding some of those early, uh, <laughs> camps and it, it's funny. Yeah. So it's amazing how, how far everything has come in those last like 30 years, not just the bikes, like the, the the cameras and the and the way the the media is portrayed, you know. Yeah. So so it's been a it's been a good journey. Yeah, and there was there was a good few of those early videos like Level Vibes and Monkey See Monkey Do, and I, I think it would be fair to say that they're a, a big part of what drove mountain biking's boom in that early nineties period. Right, you suddenly had something that was uh, viral, didn't exist then, but anyone could watch that. And, 
understand it and be blown away by it you know they were incredible locations amazing riding it was it was totally unique it must have been amazing to be part of the sport at that time like what was it like as it was as it was really starting to get pace and and get that attention from people and brands all around the world yeah it was an exciting time and at the same time you didn't really and nobody had expectations and i think that's the the biggest thing we didn't expect you know we were hoping it would get better or more professional or it would become more accepted by the mainstream but nobody knew what to expect from anything and that makes things always cool and that's why the early days in whatever you do in life you know it always um seems to be like um the ones one looks back at with the most fond memories and um and yes that there was no, nobody had done it and and for me racing became a little bit too serious you know it was all about stopwatches and lycra and training and i was like i want to I want to have fun. And, and I remember looking at these, this was in the early, late eighties, early nineties already. I looked at these extreme skiers that started to be pop up everywhere. And you know, the guys who jump off cliffs and stuff. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And I, because I always wanted to use my trial skills outside of a competition format. Okay. And, you know, and I was like literally saying, I remember saying, man, I don't want to be a mountain bike racer any longer. I want to become an extreme mountain biker. And we used that term because the, the term free ride didn't exist. This was like four or five years before the free ride boom started, before the pro riders mm-hmm. started doing their things, you know. And there was there was still like prior to full suspension bikes, really. And I just, we just used to find these natural things and, and created a market and for me, it was always about good times and fun and not taking it too serious. And, and I would have never thought, and even with the video thing that the whole industry would evolve around it or that, that it would become such a big part of our culture, you know? So, so, but, um, it all started somewhere and those were the early days. Like I remember, I think MTV, the music television, that kind of whole culture, that had a big impact on everything that happened afterwards, you know, in the skateboard world, the the first reality TV shows were all on MTV. And mm-hmm. that was like, not that long ago. And now look what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. 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 Video content really started to get going then, I guess, didn't it? It became a huge, a huge thing that everyone wanted to consume. And that the brands were piling into the mountain bike industry. There was car brands getting involved. I mean, you were sponsored by, a clutch supplier when you luck yeah yeah i i was one of the first guys really to attract outside of the industry sponsors with swatch and luk look they they make clutches for cars and they yeah. sponsored me for 19 years or two, over 20 years i think yeah actually and um and some others and then also the our the mountain bike racing started then to attract big corporate sponsors and a few years later in the mid 90s when mountain biking was already booming, um, the ESPN came and with the X Games, and in the first X Games, mountain biking had three disciplines in it. We had a slalom, a giant slalom, and a trials. And at the time, if you believe it or not, the mountain biking federation, that was the most professional of all of them. Skateboarding and BMX were almost dead. They went through a huge, like, you know, ESPN really brought them back. And there was like sports like rock climbing in there and bungee jumping and a lot of odd stuff. But the problem was since we were so established and kind of 
big already mountain biking in quotation marks. We had our own sponsors and rules and they made it anyway, our federation blew it. You know, they told ESPN, Oh, it has to be like this. And we need to have the races in the mountains. We cannot do a race in, in Los Angeles. It has to be at some ski resort. And, yeah. and then they had also these, all these corporate sponsors that ESPN were, were kind of conflicting with ESPN sponsors. So, so they made it very difficult. And, um, at the end they, they were like, well, if these guys really just want to ride in the mountains, let's put them in the winter X games. But that wasn't really real mountain biking either. And that didn't yeah. last more than a few years. And, and ever since mountain biking has been pretty much out and it's good to see that it has a bit of a comeback now with the, with the, with the video series at least, which is nothing in comparison to the real X games, but it's still cool. Yeah. 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 So that, I mean, that nineties thing was huge. Mountain biking took off and like you say, that bubble, it didn't completely burst, but a lot of the big brands or the big out of industry brands moved away from mountain biking towards the latter, latter end of the nineties. Did that make it harder for people like yourself to, to make a living from it? No, I, I, I was always good to uh, carve a new way for my a path for me and my career and be creative. I think I always had a marketing driven mind that helped me throughout this. I, I delivered value to the sponsors above and beyond racing, even though I did that for 20 years and I won my share of championships and titles. But, you know, and then I did the video boom. And after the video boom, I when when the real DVD boom started with the flow riders and all that stuff, I actually moved on already to do these adventure trips and I would film them for TV, mm-hmm. but I would get the sponsors on mainstream TV and and it would all of a sudden open the door to a whole new audience. And and the thing is also, I mean, take a, a race, for example, if you race, only one guy can win and you might get your two-minute run on TV. But you do a one-hour documentary TV show that airs not only in a 100 different countries, but it gets rerun all the time and stuff. Then you, you know, it's a lot of value for the sponsors, really, you know, and it was a... So in those years, I focused really on that kind of um, exposure. And I think that helped me to also build my name a little bit more on a mainstream platform. Yeah, yeah, you've always been very shrewd, I think, at understanding your value. We were looking before we, we started at some of the your media books that you put together every year for your sponsors. But that landscape's changed a lot, hasn't it? In, in your career, like when you started... Like you said, even putting a video together was a huge piece of work. Now you can do it with your phone. It's really easy to dis- distribute it for free on YouTube. Has that has that changed how you approach things and how you look at your value? Do you think? Yeah, to, for sure. I mean, I had to change my the, my game uh, several times over the years, and especially lately with this whole everything about social media, which is great, but then. You know, it's really hard to measure the impact on social media. Does that really sell bikes or which social media personalities or athletes do sell product? Because a lot of them don't, mm-hmm. you know, even even though if they might get the views and even then, then, then you have the, the possibility of are they real views or are they, you know, I call it social doping, you know, which so many people have done that and really diluted the waters that way. But um, I had to adjust over the years and I'm still adjusting. And 
but I mean, it's not that long ago. Like one of my one of my claim to fame was that I've probably had four hundred and fifty front covers in magazines. Yeah, and now nobody even reads magazines anymore. But just to put this into perspective, I don't think there is a writer out there that had two hundred front covers in the in the mountain biking world. So and and there's very few who had like over a hundred or over 50. Yeah. So just to put that into perspective and nowadays it's like already like, what's VHS, what's a DVD, <laughs> what's a, what's a print magazine or a front cover. So, um, but anyway, times change, but it's just things change very rapidly over the last like 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that space is getting, well, it is getting crowded. Can you, how do you think that that's going to progress? Because it feels like there's so much, content out there especially video content but all kinds of content it can't all survive can it like no it gets to the point it is too much you can't even the good stuff you you don't have the time or the energy to watch it again yeah i mean no offense to these guys who do the audi lines or whatever they call it mm -hmm. i saw all these posts but this weekend was so busy with world championships and malverns and I was like, I cannot watch another triple backflips, whatever, you know, thing. It's like, it gets repetitive to a thing, to a, to a point where, where you can only consume so much. And then, um, so I, I, I think it will level down more like, again, it's going to be good for the, the real guys, the people who have real results, the people who are real people, the people who don't buy their stuff or buy into the hype, who actually create lasting impressions or really really influence people so but um yeah we'll see what the next trend will be definitely yeah and you you like you say you moved kind of away from the racing side of things and more onto the the extreme mountain biking and the adventures and, and getting out around the world on a bike um yeah tell us a little bit about that because it was quite a bold move you moved away from the gt sort of factory team i guess set up your own your own sub team or your own separate project at that point. Yeah. Well, if you're a trials rider, you're always kind of this unwanted stepchild <laughs> from everybody. It seems like as much as trials can be popular and some of the biggest names in our sport, uh, trials guys or with guys with trials background, I mean, look at Danny or yeah. a few others, but, um, the, the thing is, um, what was the question again? Yeah, what? How did you go about making that move, and what drove oh. you to do it? To put together your own team, and yeah, I, I. The cool thing is living in Southern California. There's a lot of stuff happening, and it's very creative. And I was always on the forefront, and I was influenced by other sports and other athletes, and and I just like had my own vision of of doing stuff. And yet, at the beginning, it was the videos, and then like doing the extreme biking. And then later, I always loved to travel to these mysterious places or remote places or ride extreme trails that were considered unrideable or nobody had tried them before. I mean, nowadays, it's really hard to go anywhere in the world where, where a bike hasn't been. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case. Like, and, and, and so we, you know, I would like plan these adventure trips, you know, like, it, and it was kind of, I remember telling my team manager, this was probably around 1998, I said, I want to leave Team GT, which I was like a founding member of, you know, when they started in 87. But I don't want to leave GT the brand, you know, don't get me wrong. But I think we have a team at the time, there was like 10 guys, people in there, you know, names like Steve Pete and 
the biggest name of, of the sport, you know, we're on our team. But I want to start doing this adventure stuff and get us outside exposure, outside the bike industry and with like, um, get it with, you know, mainstream TV and maybe bring even, even in some mainstream sponsors, like a, a Tommy Hilfiger closing line or Polo, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. I, I talked to these brands and, and my, my team manager and everybody had a really hard time understanding that they were like, you know, until then, like a couple of years later, when they started seeing these res the results and the documentaries on TV and each of these stories, we would have a photographer along and he would make a photo story and it would end up in 25, 30 different magazines because my, my career was always very global. It mm -hmm. wasn't just in America or in Germany or so, you know, like I would work with all the magazines and I would travel all over the world. I would often be the first international mountain biker to visit Brazil or Ecuador or Australia, you know, and, and the advantage I had, if Ned Overend would go to Australia to a TV show, what would he show them, you know, but I could like do a show in the studio and do something. So I was, you know, that was kind of a, an advantage I had over those other, uh, you know, big names from, from that era. Yeah. 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 And it's taken you to some incredible places, some very remote places. Did you ever get into any trouble on any of those trips? Cause you were in some pretty wild, wild spots. Yeah. Only when Steve Pete came along, <laughs> the trouble started. Uh, no, um, there was some remote places and we dodged, we dodged a few bullets. I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate, you know, I'm knocking on wood here that I've never been on a trip where somebody died or, you know, and we got into dangerous situations, often probably not knowing it sometimes getting almost robbed or we had experiences with being possessed by spirits or this, this was Borneo, was it? That was a trip with Borneo. I did. It's kind of a long story, but we were, we were looking for headhunters and we ended up finding these bones in a cave. And I just held one up like a skull thing for the camera. And when we walk out, Pete, he goes like, man, you shouldn't have touched it. I said, why? He said, they told us not to touch anything. And then I said, oh shit. Anyway, I was kind of apologizing to the whole scene quietly, but um, things went pretty upside down afterwards. And it's but it, a lot of weird things happen. It's kind of a longer story, to be honest, but um, it's like, it's not like that PD or all the other guys who were on that trip think, I, oh, guy, Hans is losing it now. It's like, there was some weird stuff happening. And then also afterwards in, in our lives or in my life specifically, um, that changed a lot of things, but that's just one of the stories in China. We were followed by the secret service because we were looking for some, <laughs> an, an alien dwarf tribe and the secret service was very interested in what we knew and what we wanted to do and to the point where we never got to see it, but they kind of admitted, yes, it exists, but it's none of your business and now get out of here kind of a thing. And yeah. China's an interesting place. So certainly probably when you went to, to do anything like that, to film, to do these projects, you're often given a, a local guide in inverted commas. who might not just be quite a simple guy. They might be part of the secret service. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. It's, and it was even worse then. And so there was a lot of places like in, I think in Kenya, we got, I think we got really close. I rang the alarm bells of my wife was with us and we were at a really remote campground. That was at the, the last day of our trip. 
And I think we were kind of getting set up to be robbed and what knows what what else they would have done. And I kind of rung the alarm bells and had some people come back to our camp who had left already. And I may or may have not been wrong, but I think um, I prevented uh, something bad from happening there. So anyway, so yeah, um, stuff has happened on those trips. But you know what the biggest thing is? To, to learn about those destinations and to find them. That was before the internet often. We couldn't just Google and see mountain biking in Borneo. Yeah. We had to either know somebody or I would buy historical books and write in between, read in between the lines, like about to find maybe something out if there's trails or if the trails are what kind of condition they were in. Or find an old map with a route across a mountain range. And really, you know, I mean, I would often buy Lonely Planet travel books. They were really big for backpackers. Yeah. But that 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 game has changed. Nowadays, it's like you just Google and everything pops up and photos. You can see photos and and stuff. So Yeah, it was some wild times for sure. And you, you rode on an active volcano in Hawaii. Yeah, that was probably the most dangerous thing, you know, whenever you mess with Mother Nature. This German filmmaker contacted me once, and that was also early on, in the probably in the late 80s, and he wanted to do this dance on the volcano thing. He did like all the, he would literally go and they windsurf in the waters, in the boiling ocean water where the, la- where, the, where the lava would flow in and they would do stuff. And he tried to ride over the lava or around the, the hot lava streams up there on the mountain and he wouldn't get very far. And he saw some footage of me and he asked me to come out and he wanted me to do this dance on the volcano. And I literally had to put on three layers of clothing and this the lava was wasn't erupting from the volcano, but it was like flowing down the mountain, but then pockets would, would still erupt and like rot, red hot 2000 degree rocks would fly through the air and could hit you, you know? And I would be on the edge of this little cliff thing that was brand, brand new. That wasn't there the day before because the lava just had made it. And if you would have fallen off, but anyway, it was quite dangerous, but it was, it was cool. And since then, I've written a lot of volcanoes, but most of them weren't active at the time. Yeah, probably a more sensible approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but, you, you've, you know, you've done all these trips on a bike. Have you found bikes to be a good leveler while you've been away on your on your travels? Like, has it been a good way to meet people, to meet locals? Oh yeah, they they're a great icebreaker. You know, bikes are so universal, and people can relate to it, even though they have different meanings for a lot of different people. I mean, that's made me start my nonprofit charity, Wheels for Life, where I would go to a lot of these developing countries and I see that, you know, we come there with these fancy bikes and toys and 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 these guys can't even afford a hundred dollar bike and it would be it would benefit them so much if they had a bike because then they could reach a school or healthcare or or become an entrepreneur and bring their goods to the market or whatever. So but Yes, the bike has been an icebreaker. And, and so often we would go to places. I remember those adventure trips and people had sometimes never seen white people or Westerners. Sometimes they never seen a bike, like ours at least. And God forbid you would tell them how much they were, you know, that they, you know, that these bikes would be worth three, four, five thousand dollars, you know, they, these people couldn't comprehend it. But 
Then you would start doing some tricks and a wheelie and some back wheel hops. And <laughs> the next thing is the whole village would come together and from skeptical faces, smiles would go on their faces. And it was really, it was really an icebreaker in so many instances. Yeah. I saw you up in Glasgow recently and I think you ended up riding with some of the local kids and just looked cool. That Yeah. Just being there on a bicycle, everyone just seems to want to be part of it. It's like, yeah, it is. It is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fair play. Obviously, you know, huge amount of success through the competition side, through all the videos, probably one of the most well-known mountain bikers on the planet, if not the most well-known at that point in time. Um, to the point where I think Shannon Doherty wore a Hans Ray t-shirt on an episode of Beverly Hills 90210. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, that's true. We sometimes got to rub a little bit elbows there and, I remember GT had, um, they would sometimes supply bikes or product for product and product stuff for product placement to certain TV um, set makers or shows. And and that was kind of my claim to fame that there was an episode where she wore nothing else but a Hans Ray t-shirt. <laughs> and that was a really, really big TV show for those of you who might be too young to, to remember that. But that was kind of... Um, and they, they used to have my posters in, on the set in some of the rooms. Like they had a pool room in the in the show, you know, where, where they filmed a lot of scenes and my posters would show up in the background or a GT bike sometimes pops up or so, yeah. Nice. And has that, has that kind of level of fame, like has that opened any doors for you along the way? Is it has it given you experiences that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise? I'm sure it has, you know, some, some of that stuff just happened. And at the time you didn't really f realize how cool it was, or it wasn't that big of a deal. I remember, I think I only watched, saw it once. I don't even have a copy of it. I've actually tried to find it, that scene of uh, Beverly Hills, um, where she wore that t-shirt. It must not, you know, I mean, those episodes must be somewhere. The problem is there's probably 150 episodes. I don't know which one it was, yeah. but the, these things, these things happen and it, sometimes you took them for granted and, you know, just looking back, you go like, oh my God, this was a, a big deal. And this reminds me of when Danny first became big. I remember he had literally like the late night show and the New York Times knock at his door, you know, like when, when his first video went viral. And mm -hmm. I remember him like tell, telling those people, oh. Uh, I'm now I'm riding with the lads in Edinburgh this weekend. I don't have time to come to New York. You know, like he didn't realize that this was something, hey, Lance Armstrong gets in the New York Times and that's about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, so sometimes when all this stuff happens, you don't realize what it was at the time, but it did open up um, sometimes doors and especially doing that mainstream TV stuff. And there was more than one occasion where you were able to kind of, kind of make a, a name for yourself. And I remember one story we were doing shows, trial shows every year at the Long Beach Grand Prix, a, a car race and, mm -hmm. and with GT at the expo area. And that the very morning of one of those days, I was on a morning TV show in, in Los Angeles doing a show and only that's how I can explain what happened next. Like a few hours later, I was at the at the Long Beach at the at the Expo, standing a little bit. Mike King and Brian Lopes, we were just chatting. They came to visit the the race, and all of a sudden, this man walks up and says, I "Just want to tell you, 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 congratulations! You have a really great talent. You know, keep keep on going." 
And he walks away and I go like, that was Paul Newman. And Paul Newman walked up and he was a car, a race car owner, uh-huh. a team owner at the time. But he, and I was like, he must've seen, because I hadn't even written that day. And either he saw me ride my bike the day before on the, or he saw, I think he saw the TV show, but that was kind of one of those things where you go like, holy cow, you know, that was, that was kind of cool. So yeah. Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty insane. And some people might not know, but you ride a bit with, um, Tim Comerford, is it from Rage Against the Machine? Yeah. Tell, tell the, us, tell us how you met him. He's the bass player of Rage and he's really into biking and he's always been into biking, even from the early nineties. And we have a common friend who always used to tell me, man, you got to meet these guys from Rage Against the Machine, you know, when Rage first became big in the early nineties and, and, I wasn't that much into music at the time and was kind of like, yeah, whenever we can write sometimes, whatever. And I was in my own little world and and we never really met. And then I remember one time I went to a Beastie Boys concert with my, with my, that other friend was in the music industry and we were kind of, it was a relatively small venue and we walk up the staircase kind of backstage somewhere and all of a sudden all the four rage guys walked down the stairs and they were all completely i don't know they said oh my god we just watched your video at 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 you know like before we came over you know they were all stoned and stuff and they were like oh, you're amazing but the music sucks in your video <laughs> and that was the first time i met and then fast forward and we never got to ride and five years later i did a photo shoot in hawaii in the middle of nowhere, Kauai, and we were in this parking lot getting ready to go on this really spectacular trail. And there was a guy getting ready on his mountain bike with these tattoos that looked almost like, you know, his leg is completely black with tattoos. It looked almost like it was a, a, a plastic leg, you know. And and we started talking. And the next thing is like, are you Hans? And I was, are you Tim? And <laughs> and so he hung out with us all day. And ever since then, we became friends. And he, we, I've written with him many times. And he's he's supported my charity in ways. But he's also, I mean, literally talking to him. I talked to him last night about like joining me for my next urban adventure in San Francisco. And this guy is he lives and breathes biking, and he's really a core a bike rider. Often, you know, he's like how everybody in the world wants to be a rock star. He's like the rock star who wants to be a bike rider. <laughs> but um anyway yeah so he's he's a good guy yeah that's cool you mentioned your urban adventures you've been doing a few of those i guess covid sort of slowed the pace down a bit but they seem to be going well you did one that i saw with um martin mays around hong kong tell us a little bit about that kind of the, the thinking behind that series well initially i started doing these adventure team trips and I, like i said i went to all these remote places and places where people never been and that kind of that list came, is now really small, and it's and I'm kind of gotten it's gotten a little bit old for me, you know. And I realized there's there's a lot of really cool urban adventures being done. A friend of mine actually put a ride together in L.A. and he called it Slay L.A. And it was exactly that. And I was like, you know what? This is what I need to do as my next adventure. And he kind of actually helped me then to adopt his, and he found all these little back alleys and parks and hillsides in the middle of a city like an incredible mountain bike loop but at the same time you also got to go to the hollywood sign and see the see downtown la or chinatown and 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 see all those landmarks and so i did one in la one in napoli in naples and then like with martin mace we went in 2019 to hong kong and it was right doing the protests and um it was crazy because that 
town will never be the same again, you know, and it was really, and we were like literally in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, we got, got caught up in it a few got, times. Got pretty hectic, right? Yeah, it got pretty dangerous. I mean, we and we tried to avoid it on purpose and still got caught up in it because we, we had to be, I wanted to really make sure we are like not getting involved with any opinions of free Hong Kong or so, mm -hmm. because the, Ch the Chinese government, they can be very cruel and they could all of a sudden tell GT, you're not allowed to sell bikes anymore in China, you know, and that's, that wouldn't be looking good on my resume. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so we did these urban adventures and it was also a really great way to tie in the e-bikes, which I have really embraced over the last years. And, and sometimes, you know, I switch back and forth, you know, because, I've been a big believer in e-bikes for a long time. I literally did my first e-bike ride in 97. Wow, okay. And with no other than President George Bush at the time, because GT had a, there was a, a opportunity to meet him at some investment thing at the time when we were going to the uh, stock market with GT and, and GT had just acquired a, a, a e-bike company called Charge or Charger. Mm -hmm. And they were way ahead of its time and it didn't work out at the time, you know, it was way too early, but we showed that bike to him and, and we literally did a few laps in a, in a con in a huge conference room. But, and then like, and then even later before the e-bike boom even took off in Europe and got big, you know, I was, I started to really uh, see a value in it and people were laughing at me. Oh, you're getting old, you're getting fat, you know, Hans on the e-bike and, and then for a long time, when the e-bike boom finally happened, like 10, 12 years ago, GT at first didn't have a bike. So I was kind of, I couldn't really do as much as I wanted to. Yeah. But then like about six, seven years ago, we, we had our first e-bike. And ever since then, I've been totally embracing it. And ever since then, I became a, an ambassador for Shimano for the e-bike program. And I still ride my regular bike, so don't get me wrong. At this point in time, it's probably 50-50 between uh -huh. regular and e-bikes. But... The e-bikes is a whole new thing and it, it's it, one doesn't have to decide between one or the other. It's kind of like you can do one day alpine skiing and the next day Nordic skiing, you know, you don't have to decide. And and I really love the technical challenges of these widow maker climbs and, and stuff that I couldn't do before. And you mm -hmm. can also go further and it's just more fun. I mean, I, I've been really riding a lot of kind of cross-country style trail rides and, and I need a certain endurance for my adventures. But at the end of the day, sometimes I have to remind myself that nobody has ever paid me because I was fast, you know, like this was kind of a side thing, you know, like it was, you know, it was for other stuff and, and, and to become fast or to stay fast, you have to invest a lot of time. And I, I don't always have that either, you know. Yeah, that's fair. Are you riding trials on the e-bike or is it just for kind of trail riding? I ride, I call it old school trials, like like before, no hopping, you know. I don't, okay. don't want to do back wheel hops and stuff, you know, if I can help it, you know. But I like pedaling over stuff or really, you know, like, like in the old days when even motorcycle trials, when they, they wouldn't hop around, you know. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of balance and finesse and skills and, and coordination. And it's kind of fun and challenging. And, um, yeah, I just did, um, Jacob's ladder that's been on my bucket list and I, on an e-bike, I always wanted to do it and initially on a regular bike, but lately with the e-bike and, um, it's not a, it's not a walk in the park on the no. e-bike either, you know? Um, I've so I've written down it. I've not tried to ride up it, but I can imagine it's a fair challenge. It's very challenging. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you want to stick to the original line. So, yeah. but that, that's, 
which I, I filmed it with the EMBN guys, so that's coming out in the next week or two. Yeah, cool. Nice yeah. one. So how, how old are you now, Hans? 55. 55. And how do you feel physically? Like, do you feel you can keep pace with the stuff that you were doing when you were younger? Like, how's that changed? It, it has changed. For a long time, I felt like I might not get better, but I can keep my level. Yeah. And, you know, like while, of course, the young generation, they would progress and do stuff that I couldn't do for a long time, you know. But that wasn't the point. I, and then I always would find my own niche where I would still accelerate and maybe even hang with the best, you mm -hmm. know, when it came to really technical trail where you need trial skills or, yeah. you know, whatever. But um, But I have to say in the last two or three years, I have been feeling my body. But I expected that, quite frankly, to happen when I was thirty. So that I'm now like that. It, that I had an extra twenty, twenty-five years on that. You know, it's. I mean, we're all getting older, and we saw with Greg Minard this weekend. I mean, he's a lot younger than me, but you know, age is just a number, and people make too big of a deal out of it. Definitely. Especially since it's something that nobody can avoid, or you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, but you need to keep. Yeah, you need to stay, keep working on it, you know, with, with my whole career, but especially also with the physical part of riding a bike and still like being able to do stuff. You know, I always say you need to keep throwing wood in the fire and, um, you know, basically stay on it mentally and physically. And it's not always easy. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people my age that are way fitter than me. Okay. But at the same time, I stay fit in different ways yeah. and the core is really important to be moving and flexing, but like the trial stuff, I never realized how physically demanding it is. I mean, we used to practice all afternoon, you know, back in the days, like four or five, six hours. And I was like, now I ride 45 minutes and I'm like completely <laughs> done. And, yeah. Or just, just do like 25 back wheel hops and you get like, you know, so, and it shows how, how physically fit I was. And that, that takes a toll, and especially if you don't do it all the time. I, I mean, nowadays I ride maybe once a week trials for mm -hmm. less than an hour, okay. and I still can do certain things, but um, it, I have to be careful too, because if you don't do it all the time, it gets dangerous. You don't have the reflexes to save yourself from a crash, or the timing is off, or yeah. the strength is just not there to do it. So, And a little bit of the will, you know, you need that will, like more in racing than what I do, but... If you don't have the will to win or the will to do something, then um, that, then you're not in a good position. And I mean, Greg Minar is a great example of a guy who still has the will to win, you know. For sure. Um, so. Yeah. So do you do anything specific to look after yourself? Obviously, you still ride trials once a week. Are there, are there certain things you're doing, be it physically or nutritionally or mentally or whatever, to kind of keep... Like, yeah, like you say, keep young. Yeah, I have the scientific beer diet. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've been pretty bad when it comes to scientific approach with anything I've done in my... I don't even do the heart rate thing or I eat whatever I want. I mean, mm. I try to balance it. I try to eat healthy. But, you mm. know, I'm not a, a great raw model when it comes for the scientific approach. What, what I have done is also try to keep fit and trying to do cross 
you know, like cross training in terms of just other sports a little bit, you know, sometimes okay. like sometimes, you know, it could be hiking or golfing or motorcycle riding or and then like, of course, all the different disciplines of biking that I do. Sometimes I take a gravel bike out, sometimes a, a trail bike, sometimes a trials bike, sometimes uh -huh. a, a downhill or enduro bike. And, but, um, it's just a mixture of all that, but, um, I couldn't, I could have probably extended my career if I would have been a bit more scientific in my approach, but, um, it's a balance though, isn't it? You've got to enjoy yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. You mentioned earlier your charity wheels for life, I think it's called, which has donated now somewhere in the region of 15,000 bikes. Is it globally? Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about where that came from, where the thought came from and then how you went about making that happen. Yeah, we are a non-profit charity. We started in 2005. My wife and I basically run it completely ourselves, uh -huh. voluntarily, no salaries involved. I paid to this day, every every time I went on a trip uh, for the charity, I paid my own travel expenses even. So it's a really pure charity. We give bikes to people in developing countries who need transportation or mobility. So it's mainly African countries, but we have done projects in Asia and South America, Central America, and um, the Middle East a little bit even. And um, we we target mainly students, healthcare workers, and then farmers or entrepreneurs who need the bikes. You know, a lot of times these people, they have to walk five or 10 miles to the next market or doctor yeah. or, or school. And they don't have public transportation. So really mobility is the key out of poverty. And I saw that on my adventure trips. And and as part, I did this, sounds a bit pity, but I did this self-help seminar, which was called Landmark Ed Education, which was probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. And part of that program was to organize some kind of a, a fund what was it, a fundraiser? Or a, uh, usually it would, would be like somebody would then organize a neighborhood get-together or family, something small. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give 50 bikes to people who need it in one of the places where I have traveled lately to in Africa or whatever. And I started looking into all the process and what, how to do it and how should we do it? Should we collect used bikes or should we... Should we, you know, like ask my sponsors to to donate bikes or what kind of bikes do they need and want? And and it was a lot of, and I learned so much and I soon realized before we even delivered those 50 bikes that it's not going to end with those, um, you know, I didn't even know what a registered charity was uh -huh. or what it took. You know, I learned all that in, in a very short time and we started it and it was nice to give back. And I always said, as long as I have my sponsors and they pay me and I can afford to run this on the site, we do it. And our goal is roughly a thousand bikes a year, which we kind of have hit. And I'm trying not to lose sleep if it's only 800 or 600 one year, but at the same time we do what we can. And, We've had a lot of support from the industry and friends and other riders, and but it's it's also you know we we still need the support from everybody because sometimes when you first start everybody supports you and then the novelty wears off you know so yeah people need to know we are still doing it and we depend especially on small donations from from anybody okay. out there. Where's the website for people to watch? It's it? wheelsforlife.org with the okay. number four in the middle. Okay. So nice one. We'll, st yeah, we'll stick a link in the show notes. So if people are interested, to yeah, support. you can, or you can go to hansray.com and you find the link there yeah. to the charity. Cool. 
So that came out of a seminar that you visited, is that right? Yeah. What, what drove you to go on the seminar in, in the first place? <laughs> I don't know. There's always room for improvement. And I, I there was a seminar that was highly recommended by by a lot of people over the years. And I always thought like, I'm perfect. I don't need this. There's no room for improvement. I don't need this. And I almost used it to save my first marriage back in the early 2000s. Uh -huh. And my ex then was bailed out of it last minute. We had, we, And then I was like, well, if she doesn't go, I don't need to go. You know, I kind of was hoping <laughs> it would help her. And then like a few years later, this opportunity came along again and it really changed my life and it helped me to start out. And it was literally before I met my wife, Carmen now, my, and um, it really set me up in the right state. And I thought, whatever I get out of it, if I get one or, thing, one or two things out of it, but it changed my life on every level, on wow. anything, anything, relationships with my parents or sisters, which were great already, but they got greater. And it was to the, and there was no side effects and no like believe this or, or some guru thing or some, you know, it was just like getting to your inner core of being your integrity and being real to yourself. And from there, everything else kind of unfolds. And anyway, it was, it's a cool thing. It's called landmark education. And I'm actually surprised it hasn't exploded yet because everybody, almost everybody who ever went there had this life changing experience and in my case, I mean, Wills for Life is just one of those little things that came out of it. But wow. my whole marriage is started out on the right foot and relationships with everybody. So anyway, sometimes I guess there's always room for improvement. And I'm so convinced of it. I said, like, like, um, like Gandhi could go there and he would become even a better person or Mother Teresa. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible because it sounds like you were in a, in a pretty good position going into it anyway, but then you took so much away. How long was the event then? It started out with a four-day or three-day event all day long, pretty uh -huh. intense. And then you could, after that, you graduate on the on the fifth day or fourth day. And then there's another, an advanced course, which is again three days. And then there was a last course in the curriculum that you could do if you wanted to. And the last one went on, it was just once a week on an evening, but it went on for like probably 10 weeks. Uh -huh. And part of that was to do this project where you had to do organize some kind of an event or a yeah. fundraiser or, you know, I forgot what, how they, how they defined it. But anyway, that's when I did the, uh, said I'm going to donate 50 bikes and that's how Wheels for Life got started. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder how many other amazing things have come out of that. Oh, uh, there's, there's there's some amazing stories. Some of the biggest um, charities and stuff. I can't recall them off the top of my head, but it's a, it's a cool thing. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Another thing that I found interesting about you is you, you manage yourself. Have you always managed yourself? Yes, I have, uh, for better or worse. Sometimes I wish I have had a manager too to... Not only you don't have to blow your own horn, but it's also a lot of work between the traveling, the writing, the testing, the planning, the trips, the photo shoots and media stuff. I mean, people still ask, like, what do you do these days? And it's like, I'm as busy as ever, really. I mean, yes, I, I have cut down a little bit of traveling. Obviously, I haven't competed in a long time. I don't. I don't even do trial shows anymore. I used to do hundreds of trial shows mm -hmm. every year, you know, and that was just part of the thing. But there's still a lot to do. And 
I was I had always an interest in marketing, and I think that helped me to promote it, but also to find ways to to make it a win-win situation for everybody involved, not just for me. I think a lot of people when they 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 look out for themselves more than for their partners or and for me it was always like I need to make sure GT is happy or my sponsors I need to make sure my fans are happy with me or the media or the promoter of such events and if they all happy then I'm sure I will be taken care of too and that formula kind of worked for me um, you know over the years so so yeah I have managed basically myself I had sometimes a few guys who drew me a bone for one gig or another or I tried out a few agencies, but sometimes it was hard to find anybody who was really that engaged and really understood the sport. It's now a little bit different. The sport is established, but mm -hmm. it was hard to understand our sport and the culture and, and to balance that between mainstream and also staying true to the core. Like, uh, you know, like I, I, I bet you, like there was, a, there was times when, like you said earlier, I had early on, some pretty good sponsors, corporate sponsors. And to give them something back, I had to wear their logo and it, it's, it can look like a sellout thing in it to a degree. And some of the hardcore, hardcore guys, they were too cool for school, but those were the same guys who would still sleep on a couch, you know, when they 30 and, you know, like, because they were too cool for school, you know, and sometimes you need to find that way. And it took a long time for the BMXers or skateboarders to adapt or, you know, to, to accept these corporate sponsorship deals. But they did eventually, and they did it in their own way. Yeah. Even if they just put a pink helmet on that meant T-Mobile or whatever, mm -hmm. but they did it. And, and sometimes you have to do these compromises and, um, and, and then, yeah, and then be professional. Like I said, you said earlier, these sponsor books I do, you not only have to achieve the exposure <laughs> and make the impressions, but then you have to, document it and collect it and put it together and present it to them. And so, yeah. Yeah. So how much of your kind of work is at a desk versus riding a bike? I'm guessing it's a percentage that's quite heavily skewed towards a desk that people might not expect. Yeah. It's, I always said like that my job, I basically have the same job than a marketing person. I, I spend easily five, six, sometimes eight hours in the office or on the phone or, on, you know, and, and lately, God forbid, but that's just what, what this requires is, you know, I had to teach myself how to edit and stuff. I used, I was used to have photographers travel with me and film teams and they do all that stuff. And, and nowadays you have to produce so much content that you have to, you know, you, you just have to get on with it, you know? So, so it's like, it, it seems like it's it's a never-ending story of new tasks get added. You know, like I, I've never heard a sponsor say, oh, because now you have to have a YouTube channel and create content, we pay you more money. It's like, it's just like, no, that's another thing you have to do on top of everything else that we still want you to do. But I guess that's, that's how it is. Yeah. So given everything you've learned, what advice would you give to kind of young up-and-coming riders who are looking to make a name for themselves in the sport? 
It depends, you know, like it, there's so many different levels and there's so many different ways to, you know, to skin a cat, you know, so there's different avenues, but the problem is also you have much more competition. You know, as much as I, it was hard for me sometimes in the early days because nobody really understood what I was trying to do or did, mm -hmm. but I had the stage to myself, yeah, which true. is a huge thing. No nowadays, even a, a guy like Danny McCaskill who had the stage for himself, for a while there, but in terms of YouTube, yeah. But even now, like it's like so much content and stuff out there, you have to be creative. But I think the fun is you. Uh, the thing is, you need to, you need to have fun, which is easier said than done. Of course, we all want to have fun, but you need to also understand if you want to make money, and then it's a business, and a business is like you have to be professional and give something in return and produce something. And there's different stages in racing, you know, like for, for young racers where at the beginning you can be really good in your age group, but then you go to a different age group and it's a different ball game or when it, and then you come to a certain age and you might be a little bit distracted by cars or girls or whatever. And then, you know, there can be all these factors or dealing with stress from or pressure from sponsors. And a lot of people pass some of those hurdles but then they get eventually stuck by another and but that's it was nice when you know you had just had jackson uh goldstone on and yeah. and and he was a kid that's been around for a long time and he was like a, i mean i don't really know exactly his story but he was more known as a dirt jumper and like a, a kid who can do slope style and yeah and now within like a couple years it seems to me from the outside he might have been working on it for a long much longer than that but he it turned into this I think it was his first downhill season and he just became junior world champion. It's incredible. And he seems to have, you know, he had always guidance by his dad and all that and by a lot of industry people, but there's other kids who've had that and who didn't make it, you know? Mm. So there's a lot of hurdles to overcome, but um, be creative and <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, go for it. Never give up. Yeah, you sometimes have to be persistent and push and, and you know, keep your eyes and ears open. But I've seen a lot of people in the industry, not just writers, but guys like yourself or photographers or, you know, who often, you know, you have to start somewhere. And I know there's a lot of photographers out there where I was one of the first guys or pros who did a photo shoot with them. Mm -hmm. And I would give them maybe the time of day. I'd say, yeah, let's do it. And... The next thing, you know, these guys like Guyby or, you know, Bob Allen, Sven Martin, you know, they, they all had to start somewhere and they all worked really hard to carve a niche in, in there. You know, some, some guys maybe started, all of those guys started probably out racing and that yeah. didn't quite pan out because there's only so much room for, you know, especially if you want to make a living, you know, I mean... Look at Stu Thompson with cutting, you know, what's yeah, uh, cut media, cut media, yeah. you know, like he was a racer. He's still an awesome writer, but he, he really like managed to create himself a, a job and a living and a business, mm -hmm. you know, out of the filming part of it, you Definitely. know, so sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's been important for you to maintain relationships? I mean, you've been with GT, you're their longest standing uh, rider. And I think, one of the longest standing relationships within sport, right? 
Yeah, I mean, depends how you define it, but it's definitely an action sport, an outdoor sport. There's not many people, like Steve Caballero, the skateboarder, he's been with Paul Peralta and Vance for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I've been like, I think next year is going to, I think next year is 35 years with GT. Yeah. And I've been with Adidas for, uh, I want to say 28 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I was with Swatch and Luke for a long time. I've been my whole career with Shimano. Yeah. I've been, you know, and there's a few other companies like Cliff Bar. I've been now probably close to 20 years with and Crank Brothers and, and so on. SQ Lab, I've been with them f- pretty much from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean... Part of me is the guy I'm not going to necessarily shop around. If I'm happy with a product and a company, you know, like I'm not going to see if I can get 10% more over there. And I also, you know, like, you know, like, and I'd I'd like to deliver to the sponsors. And I think um, a lot of my companies put their main effort into racing, which is fair enough. But then there's room for a guy like me to cover some of these other fields, you know, and, there's room for a lot of other people nowadays. Marketing has become really wide. So that's why we see now everybody taking on board influencers and try to get into different demographics, mm. be it age-wise or, or gender or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's a complex picture, isn't it? So a long, long career so far, still plenty more to go. But what do you think mountain biking is doing well at? at the moment and what do you think it could do better at i think it's a good time to be a mountain biker i mean if you just not only the the quality of the bikes and the diversity and the different we have so many different subcultures which is a beautiful thing everybody Mm -hmm. can find their little niche you know like i mean i mean a guy who does does dirt jumps on a hardtail is a completely different kind of rider than the guy who does a marathon in the Alps, you know, but they, we are mountain bikers. So, and that connects us. And now we have these trails, purpose-built trails. And I'm not saying that it's all about purpose-built trails, but we have infrastructure. I mean, it's not easy for, it's not hard for a kid to find a foam pit or dirt or airbag or a, a, a pump track or a, or a purpose-built trail. We didn't have that. We didn't even know it could be any better than riding down a fire road, you know? We saw that was cool, and it was for a time, but now we there is infrastructure there and stuff. So, And now we have, on top of that, the e-bike, which opens up the doors to a whole different demographic. And, of course, with the e-bikes, we have to be responsible and be the the new kid on the block. And personally, I I only support the pedal assist class one, category one, which is basically the ones that are limited here in Europe at 14 miles per hour. And in America, you can go 19 miles, which is a little bit better. Uh, 14 is a bit short, but I'm not into these high-powered electric uh, things or throttle assist or so. It has to be pedal assist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair. And anything you think mountain biking could be doing better at, the areas we could improve? There's always room for improvement, but at the same time, um, that's the beauty is part of the evolution and the process. And sometimes things don't work out and it can be frustrating at the time, but in the long run it finds its way and things just, or finds a new way, you know, 
you know you cannot like look back and you know as much as it was nice in the golden era and i'm happy to be was part of it but the future will be slightly different but i think the stoke can be the same you know that, that some of these kids experience you know so there's different ways uh, to go about it and i mean it, it's you know bike technology has come a long way Sometimes I find it a bit crazy how expensive bicycles can be, but um, it is what it is. So it feels like we're kind of having or on the cusp of another boom, not to the same scale as early nineties, but there is more out of industry money coming back in. The whole COVID thing seems to have driven more people onto bikes, so it does feel like it is a a positive growth period for the sport again, which is cool. I think so. And also with racing, I think racing has had a comeback in the last five, six, seven years that that current generation of guys who dominate the sport, be it, be it in cross country or in downhill, it's it's very cool. They're very professional. I mean, down, cross country used to be pretty boring. Some of a lot of the racers, they could barely go down the hill. Yeah. You know, like and could barely do a bunny hop or pull their front wheel in the air. And I mean, this generation of Nino Shorter, they have shown us all that man, these guys, um, they know how to go downhill and yeah. ride those bikes. So that's kind of cool. And yeah, it's all about the subcultures and just do with the bike what pleases you to do or what you know and um and enjoy it really definitely yeah good stuff we're getting close to the end of our time but we've got four questions that we've asked everyone so we'll hit those the first one is if our listeners had 150 pounds which is about 200 us dollars i think roughly at the minute to spend to improve their performance or enjoyment on a bike what would you recommend they go and spend it on <laughs> That's a good one. Who really depends? Um, oh gosh, I really have uh, struggling because there could be so many answers. You know, I mean, it. it I mean, if you want a product or so, in my opinion, the, the best invention, aftermarket product in the history of the sport have been proper posts. You know, but um, that's a lot probably smarter ways you can invest it, you know, maybe save that money and go to your first race. Uh, you know, like um, build some jumps or whatever. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, spend it smartly. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned earlier, actually, when we were chatting that you were, you were very early adopting the, the dropper post side of things to the point where people would take the mickey out of you kind of riding around with one that they, they thought it was a ridiculous idea. Yeah, there was not many people early on and, and especially the club, the Laguna Rats, which is one of these original mountain bike clubs there in the Hall of Fame. And they made me a real mountain biker. I still ride with them every every week when I'm back home. And But we would always lower our seats because we would really ride steep trails back already starting in the 80s and 90s. And... And I would have thought when those posts came out, this is like God's gift to the rats. And so many of the guys wouldn't embrace them for the first couple of years. It took them like a, a couple of years. And that's how it was with the rest of the world, really. And and then racers even later, but because they, they were so worried about an extra three, 400 grams or, 
you know, yes, it was a cost factor and they weren't as reliable at the beginning. But I remember Mark Weir, he's another guy who early adopted them and and um, I think they were a game changer, you know, a game changer. So Yeah, incredible piece of kit. Yeah, I re- yeah, vividly remember racing Mega Avalanche before they became a thing. And it was uh, that was a very hard place to ride without a dropper post. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Second question, if you could wind back the clock and uh, sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Whatever happens, don't accept any of these apprenticeship <laughs> jobs I was applying for. I was applying to get an apprenticeship with all kinds of businesses, kind of banks and really and like just to become like a, and, and I and they were hard to come in and I didn't get one and I'm so glad because if that would have turned out I would have I would have gotten sucked into the system and I would have never gotten out yeah and instead I kept going to schools and I'm not saying don't learn a job in in my case in retrospect I, I often thought if I wouldn't you know if that would have happened none of this other stuff could have happened. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad that as much as it was a disappointment, oh gosh, I got turned down again. You know, they didn't, I wasn't selected and I kept going to school and then at university. And then I had the guts to, to go and, and go to America. It wasn't an easy step as much as it, oh great, go to America, but to just to take a semester off. And I learned my first lesson right then and there because I knew this, there's no way the school would give me my, it was my my first real semester at the school, they would give me my first semester off. It's like, they go like, go bugger off, you know? But I went to the, <laughs> I went to the highest person in my state in education, the minister of education, because I had met him at some sports award thing because I was like German champion. I wrote him, not the school. Awesome. And he was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, you should do that. I took that letter to the school and the school rolled out the red carpet for me to leave. <laughs> and I never came back to the school. So that's, that's a bad example too, kids. You know, you should go to school. But I had a plan in place and I almost, and then once I went to America and I stayed there, I meant to go, I went to school in America actually, um, just on the side to mainly learn English and okay. do some basic marketing. But um, I... Um, I, I always planned on going back and, but there did come the point where, Hey, if, if I don't go back soon in the next year or two, I'm never going to go back to university. Yeah. And then what I'm going to do, I haven't had learned a job and I would have been kind of screwed, you know? So what I said earlier, you know, I'm not saying don't make an apprenticeship because that's the best thing you can do. You can learn a job. Then you have that always in your pocket to fall back on, you know, mm-hmm. in my case, you know, I'm glad it didn't work out that way. But just to give you one other example, like Frisch, Thomas Frischknecht, one of the greatest cross country yeah. of all time, he's the, the team manager of Scott, and his son races now too. And before his father did, and his grandfather did, but his son races too. But before he even considered him becoming a racer, he made him do an apprenticeship. Okay. And only at that. And then he started training on in the evenings and stuff. And, and only so it's like, and, and that's what you have to do because chances that you're going to make a living with the sport or that it will last much longer than two, three or five or 
it, it's very small. So, you know, be smart. And, and also you learn a lot for your sport doing other things. Even an apprenticeship as a cook will teach you something for your bike riding, I guarantee you. For sure. Yeah. Well, you did have one thing to fall back on. I heard you were pretty handy with a machine gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was in the Swiss Army. It was mandatory at the time. Well, it wasn't for me because I'm Swiss, but I, I grew up in Germany. So mm. I'm not a, I'm, I'm so-called a foreign Swiss. So they didn't, they couldn't like uh, force me to go to the army, but I still okay. did it because at the time it was kind of looked down upon if you didn't uh, do the army service. Yeah. And in my case, it was just like uh, four months, but yeah, I was a machine gun shooter in the Swiss army. Interesting. Yeah. Do you feel like the stuff you learned from that, short period of time in the army that that has stuck with you that's been useful yes it was uh, something i never regretted and the basic training is only four months and the swiss army is not professional so funnily enough the all the ranks in the army were not professional to a certain level okay so m one of my bosses there in the army whatever you want to call him leutnant or whatever he he was the marketing director of swatch no way <laughs> and his boss He, re he became the following year um, the, the coach for the Swiss national cycling team, road cycling team. Nice. So they were all had a little understanding, even though trials was such a small sport and nobody cared. They allowed me to bring a, a trial spike and I could deposit it with all the guns and munition in the, in the deposit. <laughs> and I got to train twice a week. And, um, and it was kind of a... Yeah, that Swatch connection um, did help me out in later years, you yeah. know, so it was kind of a, but I learned a lot army-wise to be a man and to be a team player. And you learned a lot about the discipline and the system and, and, and I, I was glad for that experience. Yeah, crazy. That's super. It's mad, isn't it, how these things all come together somehow? Yeah. Fair play. All right, third question. If you could have a coaching session with anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn? I know there's so many and nobody comes to mind right now. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so many people I looked up to throughout my career. And sometimes you, you just learn one thing from them or learn what not to do, you know, or, you know, or you get inspired by a certain attitude or lifestyle or whatever it could be. Um, God, these questions, you should have emailed me to them because I <laughs> know like tonight I'll, I'll think of the real ones, but um, because there have been so many inspiring people from often from other sports I learned too. Mm -hmm. You know, I looked what, like I said earlier, the extreme skiers did or the motorcycle trials guys or the, you know, windsurfers or whatever. And um, But like some of the people I respect like really highly in our sport, like, I think John Tomek is one of the all-time greats. He was such an inspiration, you know. And then there's guys like Nico Vio or, or Mina who have that so much experience and and stuff, you know, like I'm, I'm sure. And then in the meantime, as much as I, you know, like <laughs> as much as I was kind of leading that extreme biking field at one point, nowadays I can go to any village in this country or world and there's some kids who can do stuff that I can't do. So it's insane, isn't so it? So there's a lot of talent out there. They can teach me stuff and I do, I still, I'm open to learn certain things and other things. I'm, I'm fine with letting them go, letting other people take over. So what's it like? Can you turn up 
at a spot these days and a lot of the younger kids won't know who you are? Can you kind of go under the radar? Does that work? Or do, do even this younger generation of riders still recognize you? And It's it's so-so. I mean, the, there's, there's plenty who have no idea who I am and, uh-huh. you know, and they know Fabio Widmer's cousin, you know, but, yeah, yeah. but they, then there's also a lot of kids. It's not just, I mean, I always say that demographics in mountain biking goes from two years to 92. And, and my demographics is a little bit similar. It's not just my age, my generation who appreciates me. I've been around for three generations and I still do stuff with some of the cutting edge people. And mm-hmm. I do stuff that, you know, like, and I, I stay relevant. So there is just as men, you know, that I do meet, um, teenagers, who are super stoked to meet me. I was really surprised even Jackson making that statement that if he could be coached by somebody, yeah. it would be me. Yeah. So maybe I should get coached by him. So I pick him <laughs> there you go. Uh, for my answer. Um, but um, um, I, I'm not surprised if people don't know me, you know, I can, I can walk in a bike shop and nobody knows who I am, or I can walk in a bike shop and everybody knows who I am. It's, it's a bit weird, you know, and, and, and and sometimes that even happens. Like I could go in some country to this, this, the trade stand of one of my sponsors and they don't even know who I am. Wow. And it, it just shows you how big our sport has gotten or how every single person, you know, is not, you know, that important or cannot take themselves that important, you know. So it's all relevant, you know, and it's all good. But I tell you, I have my, I have my 15 minutes of fame and... I have to say I was really appreciative the just the, the feedback I've gotten from all the people at the Malverns this last weekend. There were so many people and from all different age groups who were so stoked to take a selfie or to tell me their story. Often it's the GT story. My first bike was a Saska because of you and or I watched you at Pacific Blue and, and so on. So so that was really nice. So but yeah it's not uncommon that people have no idea who I am. Yeah. And that's it must, fine. It must be fun to see the look on their face when you start riding though. And they're like, Oh, hang on. <laughs> this guy can really move. Yeah. There have, there has been funny stories like this and, and it's, it's sometimes you just have a, a, a laugh and sometimes I've often said, I'm glad to not have that fame, that, that, that fame where you cannot go to a restaurant with your wife and people look at you or disrupt yeah. you, you know, like I can, yes, if I go to Eurobike or the Malverns, people know who I am and that's cool for a few days, yeah. but then I come back here home and I can be a regular guy and that's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. There must've been periods though, where you were, you weren't just a regular guy, right? Mountain biking was so big at that point especially in the U S we you not quite regularly recognized and or as mountain biking never been quite big enough that that was the case. It's hard for me to get a feel for it. Well, it, it I, I'm one of the guys who, 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 who got pretty close to mainstream, you know, like, I mean, there was others of course too, mm-hmm. like Sean Palmer or so, but, but since I did so many things outside or I did it on regular TV, not just on a, bike specific, you know, like saying, you know, yeah. people would know me, oh, he's that guy, or oh, he's that, the guy with the ponytail, or oh, he's the guy hopping over the rocks. And so people, you know, like there was some mainstream appeal, like you say, when, when you know, be it with some rock stars or actors or, or 
other sports personalities. But um, and yes, you do get recognized at at funny places, but at the same time, um, it's never like that out of control, you know. Yeah. So it's a good thing about the sport, I guess. It's never got so big that you can't get away from it, kind of thing. You know what? Me mountain bikers are very approachable. You know, like, you know, because anybody can walk up to me at the Mulburns and because I'm always out and about and I talk to people, you know, and, and that's how all the mountain bikers are. You can go to a mountain bike race and you can run into, into Steve Pete or into Aaron Quinn or whoever it is. And, and it's very different on the road. Okay. And that's why these guys are often treated like these heroes because they, they're in their buses and they're in their training and they're like roped off and it's really hard. If you go to the Tour de France, it's not that easy to run into. I mean, yes, you can see Lance Armstrong or whatever, you know, right by, mm -hmm. but they're not as approachable. And that makes them to some people so much more special, you know, when they actually get to. But mountain bikers are different in that way. So... And for better or worse, but I think we are natural and it's like, there's no reason to be full of yourself just because you want to race or two and, um, and, you know, meet your, you know, meet, you know, like I remember meeting heroes for the first time. And if they gave me the day, you know, the, the time of day that I made, I, I remember that to this day. I remember meeting some football players or some, you know, like other sports guys. And, and I learned a big lesson from that. And basically the lesson is you can only make a first impression once. And it's actually a great honor that somebody wants your autograph or, or gives you a compliment. The last thing I should do, give this guy attitude, you know? So, so yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. I think that's very true. My experience of mountain biking has always been that it's very approachable, which is something I really like about it. It's, it's pretty unique, I think. It is. It is. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Final question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? That I feel that benefits me. Hmm. Oh. I don't know. I'm trying to balance it out between wor work and writing and doing some other hobbies and at the same time, you know, like I'm fine if I don't ride my bike every single day, you know, as much as I still ride like five, six times a day. But if I don't get to ride for three days, it's not the end of the world. Um, and in this, in, you know, going, going up in age, you know, you want to keep your body fit and do a bit more stretching and exercises, which I should do a lot more of, but I do some and, um, and then have a beer, forget about it all and start over again the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Cool. Well, if people want to find out a bit more about you and keep up to date, where are the best places for them to look? I think the best places is my Instagram and my YouTube channel. I've been mm -hmm. actually posting quite a lot of stuff on YouTube, old and new. And um, I have a website that is always full and has links to all that stuff and my past adventures and the bikes I ride and and so on. So, yeah, those are probably the ways to find me. Good stuff. I shall put links to all of those in the show notes so people can find them nice and easily. But, yeah, thanks. It's been really interesting uh, finding out more about you, hearing some of the stories from many years of uh, of incredible riding and adventuring around the world, and hopefully we'll see plenty more. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully uh, everybody will enjoy it. I'm sure. Nice one. Cheers, Hans. Bye. <laughs> 
All right, that's it for this episode with Hans. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. A massive thanks to Muckoff for supporting this episode of the show. They've just launched their first plastic-free bike cleaner, Punk Powder. And as a downtime listener, you can get 20% off that and the rest of the range by using the code DOWNTIME20 over on muckoff.com during September. Head there now and check out what they have to offer. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get your hands on our full range of merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all the proceeds going to help improve the podcast. If you're still listening and you've got a little bit of time, then there's a few ways you can help. First, and most importantly, tell your rider mates about the podcast, because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. Secondly, please give the episodes a share on your social media. It's an awesome way to spread the word. It's great to get some buzz going around the episodes, and it's really nice to see you enjoying what I'm putting out there. Then, if you've got a little bit of time still spare, a review on Apple Podcasts goes a really long way. All right, we're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>